Hey, everybody. Amen. It's good to be with you. It's good to have the Word of God sung and prayed and now in front of us um, as we finish up the book of Acts. So if you've got a Bible, please uh, pull it out. And if you don't, then there should be one at a row near you uh, that you could just ask your neighbor for. And we are finishing the book of Acts today. Acts 27 and 28 is where we are. And then, as I alluded to last week, we will begin a four-week series just to finish out the summer entitled, Behold Our Savior, where we look at Jesus from four kind of different angles, so to speak, to uh, behold Him and be changed by beholding His glory. So, looking forward to that. And um, as we finish up the book of Acts, I will... Uh, read the last three verses and then pray, and then we'll, we'll go at it together. So, Acts 28, I'll read verses 28 through 31. The Word of God reads as follows. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles... They will listen. And so Paul, having arrived in Rome, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Let me pray. Father, I thank You for Your beautiful Word. May it be a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. May we hide Your Word in our heart that we might not sin against You. Would You take Your Word and move it from merely mental to grip the heart? Would You protect us from just living our lives based upon feeling. And so would you also engage our mind that we might know you. But may we be both head and heart, hands and feet. And may we not become siloed into doing just one of those. May you get glory. May we listen well. Would you change us on the spot? Would we have deeper affections for Jesus? And would that overflow in love? We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Okay, so I don't know about you, but even for a very small soccer fan, I have been riveted by the World Cup. So, um, I have really grown to enjoy it. You know, it's kind of like those guys who come alongside, now I'm not advocating NASCAR, but you know, people when they look at NASCAR, they're just like, that is ridiculous. Why in the world would you watch that thing go around in circles like 500 times? That just seems like a waste of time. And then somebody who actually loves it begins to share their passion with you and shares all these things and it's like, oh, okay, maybe I could watch it for a little bit. Well, I did this with World Cup. I've been around some people who just love the World Cup, and it has really got my World Cup juices flowing. You know, I'm enjoying this. I'm, I'm understanding it, some strategy. It's been a lot of fun. And, of course, this whole journey, especially with the U.S., there's been this nationalistic pride that's kind of arisen in our hearts and people gathering in massive numbers to watch it. 
uh, really sad when they lost uh, to Belgium. But, um, you know, so we move on. And the, uh, I've spoken like a true non-soccer fan, right? <laughs> some, some will not move on for years, you know, still in tears, but that's okay. Um, but this whole World Cup thing is consistently about who is going to advance, who will continue to advance all the way through to the end. And something interesting happened for the first time in World Cup history. The coach of the Netherlands, as it went into overtime, he pulled his normal goalie and put in a guy who had not been in the entire game. His, not his number one goalie. And he puts this guy in and he didn't he had not they had planned this before but did not tell their you know the guy who's been goalie for them the entire world cup kind of got them to where they are and so they just basically say i'm going to pull you goalie and i'm going to put in this new guy and apparently this new guy has been studying this team and how they do penalty kicks so he became a specialist there and of course that's either going to backfire and you're going to be ridiculed for the rest of your life or you're going to be a hero well the netherlands pulled it out and this guy uh, ended up blocking several of the penalty kicks and they ended up winning and Netherlands has advanced and moved on. And who knows who's going to win this thing, but it's been a great journey to just see who is going to advance. But what's amazing is as you look at the advancement of these teams, you begin to see you build up and, yes, I want them to win, and then it falls through and they, they don't advance. Somebody is going to advance all the way, but... In years to come, they too will not advance. And then just, just to see how they advance through things that you just didn't expect, like the pulling of a goalie in the very last minute. And it began to strike in my heart as we come to the end of Acts 28. The end of the book, we have two things that are guaranteed that mirror that picture of the World Cup. Number one is that unlike these teams, which will advance for a season and then fall off, God will always be advancing His name and His church. And two, just like that coach's move was unexpected, God will always advance His church in unexpected ways. And so as we look at Acts 27 and Acts 28, it's not only meant to be looking at those two chapters kind of in isolation and see how the story kind of ends in Acts, but it's also meant to be read as a letter. And so you've got this whole book that's now given to you. And so we will also need to see how certain themes throughout the entirety of the book are meant to land on us by the end. So we will see both of these. And what is striking when you finish it is it just kind of leaves you with a cliffhanger. This book, it just like... Okay, now what? Does Paul live? How far does the church advance? Where does it go? How, how, many, how do these other churches do? You don't get any of this. You just get, Paul stays in Rome for two years, and he's faithful to proclaim the kingdom of God and to teach about the Lord Jesus Christ. He does it with boldness and he's not hindered. That's all you get. We know from history that Paul gets his head lopped off later on. But we know... That the gospel has continued to spread. We're evidence of it. So what's beautiful, as we end the book of Acts, it's actually, it's just the beginning. To end the book of Acts, it's just the beginning of the church spreading. That God is passionate about advancing His church. His church will advance. And the two main ideas that we're going to look at today, His church will advance through, number one, security in His sovereignty. And number two, 
It will be the proclaiming or the spreading of God's kingdom. Understanding what His kingdom is, understanding what the content of that message is, understanding what it looks like when you see it. But His church will be advancing by security and His sovereignty and watching His kingdom spread like wildfire. So, let's look at Acts 27 and see where we get this idea of security in God's sovereignty. Now, what has happened is Paul has appealed to Caesar. Now, if you're new with us, let me kind of catch up really quickly. Paul has been put on trial for things that he didn't do. He was accused of stirring up riots. He was accused of taking a Gentile into the Jewish temple, which was just a religious no-no. And he was also accused of leading this religious sect called Christianity, which he is guilty of, but it wasn't against the law to do that. These are just the charges that the Jews brought against him. So he was tried not once, not twice, but three times in this one town alone, Caesarea, that's where we were last week, by several different governors and leaders. And even the king of the the Jewish region, King Agrippa, wanted to hear his story. And what's ironic is every one of them, not the Jewish people, but all of the leaders have pronounced him basically innocent. But because Paul, which was his right as a Roman citizen, appealed to go to Rome, appealed to Caesar, he now has to be sent to Rome. And Paul appealed to go to Rome, not because he thought he was guilty, but because God had promised him. God had promised him that his life would be spared in Jerusalem and in Caesarea and throughout the region because God had a purpose for him to get to Rome. And so Paul appeals to go to Caesar because he knew that's where God was going to take him. And so Acts 27 is his journey from Caesarea all the way to Rome via ship. Now, we got a map behind us that uh, we're going to look at, and basically what you'll begin to see is the red line is his journey. Okay? He goes from Caesarea to Sidon. You might have, in the Bible, Sidon is an important landmark. It's Tyre and Sidon. It's mentioned all the way from the beginning. And then he goes up through Cyprus. The text begins to describe how going that way protects from some of the strong winds. And then he begins to go up near a town called Myra and cuts underneath the island of Crete. And that's where they should have stopped. Acts 27 begins to say that winter was coming... And as they crested that land, there was a debate among them on whether they would continue going or not. But some of the soldiers, contrary to what Paul had recommended, Paul said, you need to stay put. They said, no, we're going to go. And so now you can see this is the longest leg of their journey. And in what is called the winter, they begin to head towards Rome, which is up there. And let's see what happens to them as... They make this journey. Look at verse 9. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid no attention to the pilot. Uh, The centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend a winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea and now make this long journey from Crete forward to Rome. 
And that's where they were going to spend their day. Now look at verse 13. Now, these are sailing ships. They're guided strictly by winds. And so in verse 13, Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along running under the lee of the small island called Kata that was trying to protect them from the uh, strong winds. And then you begin to just hear all of the different trials and all the they're using language of how they tried to maneuver to keep these winds from throwing the ship off course. Now look at verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men... You should have listened to me. <laughs> kind of an I told you so moment. You know, I don't normally recommend those, but I think in this way, it, you know, we'll just trust Paul here. <laughs> Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in my God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. So, Paul met once again by his kind, gracious, pursuing Father God. And God speaks to him and basically reminds him of the promise that has come earlier. You must get to Rome. The Gospel must get there. You must encourage that church. Multiple purposes for him to get to Rome. But you must go. And so, God begins to tell him that you will not be harmed. And not only you, but I'm going to protect everybody that's on the ship with you. And so Paul shares that message with the men that are on the boat. Now, let's keep reading and see what happens. Verse 27. When the fourteenth night had come, been traveling for a long time now, and as we were driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing the land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little further down, they found 15 fathoms, verse 29. And fearing that we might run, and you see the we there. Fearing that we might run, that means Luke, the one who is writing these things down, is on this journey with Paul. You see this we regularly throughout these journeys, that Luke is with Paul on this journey. And they let down four anchors from the stem and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. So you get the picture. They're panicking. 
They're wanting to get in the lifeboats and kind of take off. And Paul is saying, they've got to stay in the ship or they're going to die. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes and let the ship's boats, lifeboats go. Do you feel any tension here? Okay, here's what you just read, what we read together. Not one of you will die. If you get in those lifeboats, you'll die. Does that seem a little tense or different to you? Do you get the tension? This is what I think is one of the most beautiful things about God's sovereignty. And this is something that I feel many of us don't understand. We, and I've said this before, you see it multiple times as you come through the book of Acts. This tension of man plans his steps, but God directs them. Does man have a sense of responsibility? Are his choices even real? Or is God ultimately fatalistically determining all things and it doesn't even matter what people choose? And I just, I hear it practically working out in people's lives all the time. And you're falling on one side or the other. You go through suffering if you believe in God's sovereignty and you say, well, He has purposed this, and therefore you say He's not grieved over it, and you basically are just, you get angry at Him because you think He's done all this and there's no sin involved in anything. You just, ah, I'm angry at God. And so, and I understand that. I'm not scoffing at that at all, really, honestly, because there's real pain and real intensity. But I'm explaining that's one side of the story. The others are, I've done all of this to me. This is all my fault. God had nothing, no purposes in it at all. There's no significant design. He's over here. All of our actions over here. Which is it? And Paul says, you cannot throw these things to the side and say there it's an either or. It is a both and. It is a both and. Tim Keller says this. He says, on the one hand, God is setting and fixing absolutely everything the way He wants it to be. However, He doesn't do it despite our choices, but He does it through them. Our choices are part of His plan. End quote. Some of you might say, Well, that just means that then He knows what I'm going to choose and then He responds based upon what I choose. No, there you go again. It's it's either or. And I'm saying, no. God's plan will happen. He has ordained everything and fixed absolutely everything. And yet your choices are real significant choices. They matter and He works through them, not despite them. And you just say that just sounds stupid. <laughs> it just doesn't make sense. Well, I don't know of another analogy. I used it only like three months ago, but I'm going to throw it back out there because I find it most helpful. And that is, J.I. Packer uses an analogy of light. And he is like, sometimes light is material and particle, and light is also at the same time, it's not. And until you acknowledge that it is both material and not material, you will never be able to deal with light. It's called an antinomy. It's something that you can't reconcile in your head, but if you choose to say it has to be one or the other, you will never be able to deal with it. 
Scientists have to deal with the fact that light has those uh, that ability. It's not either just one or just the other. They both exist at the same time. And this is exactly what we see in how God has ordered the world. He has absolutely fixed everything, and we can and should trust His sovereignty. But our choices have real consequences. They're not just make-believe. And this is really, really helpful. There are real choices that have real consequences, both for good and bad. We have real responsibility. And to jump off on one side or the other will be damaging to us. So in Acts 27, we see, this is my plan, God says. I will get you to Rome. And I will spare the lives of everyone. But Paul says... Because real choices really matter. They have real consequences. You have real responsibility. He says, do not get in those boats. Stop it. Or you'll die. And he's going to trust God to preserve his promise and work out his plan. And so practically it really helps because you don't have to be passive, which says, oh, God's got everything figured out. What I do doesn't matter. That's passivity. That's unbiblical. You'll never fulfill biblical commands of love and sacrifice if that's the way you work. God's just going to do it. That's fine. He's going to save who He saves. He'll do what He does, you know. But also, you won't be paralyzed. Because really, if everything depends on you, you would be crushed. If you make one wrong decision, your whole life spirals into some way that you never planned for it to go. And many of you live in that paralyzed fashion. Making one choice, taking you this way. Oh no, have I just missed this whole aspect of what God has? You must trust God's sovereignty and find security that He is working for your good. And we begin to see it later on in the book of Acts. Because what we begin to read is... This boat goes through all... I began. I watched just recently on TV that uh, a snippet of the movie called The Perfect Storm. I don't know if you've seen that. I mean, it is just really embellished. I mean, that's just some craziness. But as I'm watching that thing, and you know, these boats are like doing cartwheels and stuff, you know, and all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's serious. I mean, I'm, I felt for it in the moment. But, you know, there was this perfect storm. And this is the mind that I have when I read this in Acts 27. It's just these massive waves, you know, and... You don't have motors to kind of help you work out of this. You are at the whim of the wind and it just everything is breaking. And, and so what you begin to have is that this ship, look at verse 33. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you continued in suspense and without food and have taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food and it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, they took bread, they gave thanks to God in the presence of all, they broke it and began to eat. And then all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all about 276 people on a ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, which means they had to throw over their last remaining bit of food. 
And now when it was day, verse 39, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with beach on which they had planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors, left them in the sea, at the same time loosening some ropes that tied the rudders down, then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground, and the bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. Just look at all the chances now that are about to come of this promise to be undone. Look at verse 42. The soldiers' plan then... I mean, it was their job to take care of these prisoners. So the soldiers are panicking. Well, rather than escape, it'd be better if they died. So... Soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, he's a soldier over about a hundred people, fairly well off. He was the guy in charge here. Wishing to save Paul, Paul had made a good relationship with him, he kept them from carrying out their plan. And he ordered those who could swim to swim overboard and first make land and the rest of the planks on, or the rest on planks or pieces of the ship. And so it was, verse 44... God did what He said He was going to do. Through wind, through the storm, through the breaking up of the boat, through soldiers ready to kill, God kept His Word. And so it was that all were brought safely onto land. And now, verse chapter 28, they land in this area. It says, after we were brought safely, we learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on a fire, a viper comes out because of the heat, and it latches onto his hand. Okay, that's time for panic if you're in my shoes. I'm not a snake fan. So, let alone one with fangs and venom, you know, hanging on your hand. So, Paul is looking here, and he just, you know slings it to kingdom come and the native people were basically saying oh my this guy's a murderer and you know they don't have necessarily a concept of God but they've got this concept of a higher being whom they call justice justice will have his way so to speak it says in verse 4 justice has not allowed him to live he however when he shook off the creature into the fire and he suffered no harm they began to wait for his hand to swell and nothing happened. And when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune to come, they changed their minds from murderer to you must be a god. That's pretty extreme, but <laughs> I get this is a little confusing for them. And it just... Why is this in the Bible? This is really detailed. Why is this here? I mean... There are so many journeys that Paul has taken. Why do we have this much detail? Because Luke wants you to see at every turn how God keeps His promises. Paul should have died. And he didn't. And it reminds me of that quote by missionary Henry Martin who says, I am immortal until God's work for me is done. It is a sense of your security is in God Himself. That does not mean you go out and play stupid because your choices have responsibilities. You don't stick your hand in a pile of vipers. That's dumb. But when you didn't ask for it and that bad boy comes and latches to your hand, God says, I'm going to get you where I'm going to get you. 
So many of us are so paralyzed in fear, and yet we must know the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, and our role is to bless His holy name. Blessing His name means spending time on our knees in prayer, praising Him, giving thanks to Him, for His promises are true. We got the snake story because His promises are true. And He wants His people to know that He keeps His Word. And therefore, when all of these trials come and you think it's going to derail God's plan, you can have security to know even through opposition, God will carry out His plan through you and in you. God will advance His church by deepening His people's security in Him. Your choices matter. Your sin affects you and others. There will be real consequences because of your real responsibility. But as we seek to live lives of love rather than fear, you know, those are opposites in the Scriptures. That will come when we rest securely that God keeps His promises. He delivers what He says He delivers. When it's His time for you, it will be His time. But until then, you can trust that every single sorrow and trial that you're going through is only for your good to strengthen you and to make you even more of a loving, spreading, praising person. They're not throwaway. And so, dear church, when you are tempted, when you're tempted, when you go through suffering and you say, On one side, God had nothing to do with that. He has no purposes. This is just a broken and ugly world. And you begin to spiral down because you wonder where God is in the midst of all of this. And you just begin to hurt. I ask you to look up and to know that our God says He is working everything for the good of His people. Absolutely everything. Your trial is not throwaway. It is actually meant to make you stronger, give you endurance and character and hope to see God in ways you've never seen Him. For some of you, you might be, yeah, I believe God's sovereign. I believe God did that to me. I believe that trial, whatever I'm going through, that sin against me, God did that to me. Don't say more than the Bible says. The Bible says that God hates that person's sin against you more than you hate it. For my God is holy and He hates sin. When you grieve over a trial that you are in, the Bible says that my Savior wept when His friend Lazarus died. My Savior grieves over suffering and my Savior hates Abuse, adultery, he hates it all. He hates it. And if you're ever a victim of these things, God is not just willy-nilly throwing things around and saying, get over it, it's my plans. He is grieving for you, he is loving you, he is with you, and he is in it. But, he also has purpose upon purpose. John Piper said this, God is working 
10,000 purposes for you right now in this very moment. Why don't we all pray just to see three of them? Wouldn't that be beautiful? Because I promise you, on this side of heaven, you will not know all of God's purposes and designs. You will constantly have the why question before you. You won't have all the answers. You'll drive yourself crazy trying to get them all. This is where you have security and God's sovereign love for you. And you rest there. But you can also pray that God would just help you see three of the 10,000 things that He's doing to make much of His name and to make you stronger. This is clearly in the Scriptures to say you've got to hold both intention. You must be responsible. But your real security rests not in your performance. But ultimately God's sovereignty to absolutely fix all things, not despite our choices, but through them. And so we go in love. Now the second main idea we see After the snake is shaken off, we begin to see God's kingdom continuing to spread. And so as His kingdom continues to spread, we see this at the end. What happens is in verse 7. Now He's in this area of Malta, this land. It says now in the neighborhood, which is, you know, I don't know if you saw that, it was just below um, the boot of Italy. Uh, It was just south of Italy and... You got that map? You want to throw back up just a second? Sorry to derail you here. Um, That wasn't scripted. You know, I'm just throwing it in here. There it is. Okay, so Malta's right here, and he still has a little bit to go. Area of Syracuse. So when you read Syracuse in the Bible, don't think the Orangeman in New York, you know. You go up um, to Regium, and then it goes up to Petoli, and then um, there's see two towns form of Apius and three taverns. That's about 12 miles south and 40 miles south of Rome. All of these places are mentioned here when you read Acts 28, but it's basically just saying he is headed towards Rome. Right now, we're at that jut spot where he spends three months in Malta waiting out the winter. And this is what we're reading in verse 7. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that his father got sick with fever and dysentery and Paul visited him and prayed. Now we begin to see seeing God's invisible kingdom, that is, God's coming to reconcile all things to Himself, His glory to be spread, the gospel to go forth, people bowing and worshiping Him, where there will be no sickness and no disease and no sorrow. All of that is the last day that we long to see. That invisible kingdom to us now is breaking in in part here. And so Paul prays for him and puts his hands on him and the man is healed. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island with diseases, they came and they were cured. They also honored us greatly when we were about to set sail and they put on board whatever we needed. And so then they make their trek up to Rome and then he begins to spend time with the believers that are in Rome. And finally he gets in Rome and it says, and he took great courage from being with his fellow brothers and sisters. He had already written his letter to Rome, and so he had known that there were believers there and had uh, interacted with some, but he had not met them face-to-face as a majority. And so he took great courage there. And it says that a bunch of Jews and Gentiles, they gathered together, and he 
takes one day. Look at verse 23. They appointed a day for him that he would come and speak the gospel to Jews and Gentiles. And they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. And from morning till evening he expounded to them, that is explaining the Bible to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. This once again, major theme in the book of Acts, the Bible is important and it speaks of God's coming kingdom. And it says some Jews believed and some did not. And he says, that's exactly what my Bible told me would happen. There would be some of you who would hear this message and would push it off. And he says, this passage, this passage here that he read in verse 27, this is speaking of you. And after he read it, He says, Now salvation will move from the Jews, and it has been sent to the Gentiles. And this is where I want to just take real quickly, we're not going to spend any time on these points, but I just want to give you a list of Luke's main aims. And then end with one or two here that he finishes the whole book with. So why did Luke write this book? We've come to the end. Why did he write this book? Well, one, it was to say our Christian faith is historical. It's rooted in events in history. Number two, it served as a defense to those in the government around them that these Christians had not offended the government. They were lawful people. And that Paul was innocent of all the accusations that were being brought against him. And so this is really important because he's written 12 to 13 letters and we need to know if he is who he says he is. Number three is this was written, as it says at the beginning, to Theophilus, the fear of God. It was written as a defense for the faith to followers of Jesus so that they would have this as a defense and security for their faith. Number four. It was a description of life and worship for the early church. It showed their strong sensitivity to the Spirit. It showed how they prayed. It showed how they broke bread together. It showed the devotion to God's Word, how they proclaimed Jesus, how they baptized those who were saved. Elders were raised up to lead the church, and they even sent out missionaries. All of that we got as we plugged through the book of Acts. It began to show us the life and worship of the church. And then it also showed us that the church is a going people with the gospel. You constantly saw how the gospel went out and was advancing. But specifically here, he brings up that this, which I think are the final messages that are given to us in the book of Acts, is that this gospel is not just for Jewish people, but it is meant to include the nations. It is meant to include Gentiles. That is a major theme when it comes to the Scriptures. That's why when you're in Acts 1.8, it says that the gospel will go forth from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, and that's kind of the outline that you begin to see as you go through the book of Acts. But the implication for us as a church is pretty striking. Although each one of those points you could take and make application points from, this one stands to be noticed that this is one of the main themes of Acts is that the gospel moves away from just being a Jewish message to being a message for all the peoples of the earth. 
And therefore, Paul Tripp wrote something this week that was really helpful. By the way, I got so many emails this week from people. I think they were just burdened for me or something. So many emails from people saying, hey, I read this on the book of Acts. You should, get, you should look at this. Hey, and you know, it's a lot of quotes coming. It's like people are like going, hey, you should look at this. Hey, you should look at it. You should look at it. Hey, it's just like family sermon prep. I really appreciated it. So as one person was reading um, this by Paul Tripp, I thought it was so striking for why it's important that the gospel moves from Jews also to Gentiles. And Paul Tripp said this, that what the church is to be aiming for is unity, not just uniformity. And I'm like, okay, what's that mean? Uniformity, he says, is when a group of people share the same lifestyle preferences. You know, the Jews, they shared the same culture. They shared the same kind of understanding of life. And we tend to gravitate towards those who are like us, don't we? Very easy. Those who vote our political position, those who work similar jobs, we watch the same TV shows, or, you know, we do certain things the same way. That's who we gravitate to. Same hobbies, sports, whatever. Uniformity isn't necessarily wrong, but it's far short of what the gospel calls us to pursue. Uniformity should never be the goal of the body of Christ. Paul Tripp says this, Unity is unique because it relies on the Holy Spirit. While uniformity is built on the preference of the individual, unity is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ and His Gospel. The same Lord that dwells in my soul is the same Lord that dwells in your soul. Amen? And the Spirit will literally agree with itself, with Himself, inside two believers when they put aside personal preferences and differences and they try to come together. This is meant to say the Gospel is powerful enough to take those who were separated and bring them together. That's what the Gospel does. It should be a mixed up group of people from multiple cultures and multiple backgrounds, loving one another intensely. And it shows off the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is exactly what Paul is saying. The Gospel is going to go to the nations. And this was a major theme that he ends with. I could choose a lot of themes, but here at the end he's saying the God, salvation's gospel, the salvation of God going to the Gentiles is the theme that I want to end this book with. And what we've already seen is Paul is proclaiming, verse 31, the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance, which means the advance of the church despite opposition. That's exactly what we have been talking about and reading, is that nothing will stop the progress of the gospel. Paul was able to press on because he knew his God was for him. But finally, honestly, this book cannot be a celebration of what you and I are to do first. It's not meant to be a celebration of our mission. It's meant to be a celebration of our God. So this book begins and it ends with a God who is faithful to His purposes. A God who landed on the church and gave His Holy Spirit. And you might not see the word Holy Spirit in every single chapter, 
But tell me if you see any of these things. Do you see anybody making much of Jesus? Chapter after chapter? Do you see anybody filled with boldness? Chapter after chapter? Do you see anybody filled with joy? Like when Paul's in prison and he's singing. Do you see that anywhere? What about when he comes to Lydia and she is fragile in her faith? Do you see his gentleness coming near to her? Do you see love anywhere in the book of Acts where people are sacrificing their own needs to take something that's good and precious and lovely to them? Do you see God's righteousness being taken forth when Ananias and Sapphira are struck down because of their lying? Do you see conviction of sin? Do you see the church spreading and growing? Then all of a sudden, you see the work of the Spirit of God all over the place. That is the message that needs to be said as this book comes to an end. Jesus says in John 16, 7, It is better that I leave you because I will send to you a Helper, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. And He is in us and with us. And He is still at work. Have you seen any love in your hearts this week? Has there been any of you who have been a peacemaker at all? In your marriage, with your kids, with roommates? Have you been gentle? Have you had any joy? Have you been comforted? Have you been convicted of sin? Has there been any boldness? The Spirit of God is at work today. God gives prophetic words to His people to encourage one another. God does heal even today. But God has given us His Holy Spirit that His Gospel that has been going forth for 2,000 years would still go forth. And it is still today crushing hard hearts. And it is still today giving hope. It is still today granting boldness. His Holy Spirit, He is at work right here and right now. And we are meant to end this day with celebration that His Holy Spirit is alive and at work in you. Not leaving you as you are, comforting you in your suffering so that you can have security in His sovereignty and you might be used by Him to spread His kingdom until He comes again. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that Your kingdom would come, Your will would be done on this earth as it is in heaven. And I do ask that there would be a celebration, there would be a joy that overflows our heart that You have not let us go, that Your promises are sure sure and stable, that you are rock solid for your people and that you have a purpose for us. And so, oh God, I pray, may your greatness be seen and loved. May you be adored and may we take you to our families, to one another and to the ends of the earth, proclaiming, let your kingdom come, oh God, break into the here and now that we might see more and more of you. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.